It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum is produced at the Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You want to find out a little bit more about us? Just check us out at crawford.anu.edu.au. And today I have the great pleasure to introduce Dr. Luke Glanville as my special guest and co-host. Luke is a fellow in the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs here at the ANU, and he's got expertise in international theory, the responsibility to protect, and the history of international thought. He's also the author of the multi-award-winning book, Sovereignty and the Responsibility to Protect, A New History, and co-editor of the journal Global Responsibility to Protect. Welcome, Luke. Thanks, Julia. Look, you're a teacher and you teach the course, the evolution of the international system at the Coral Bell School. I've got a question for you. What is the one thing that you teach your students that they're constantly surprised by? I suppose one thing that often surprises them is just how so many of the debates and dilemmas that we wrestle with today have such long and rich histories. So even... Even the topic of today's podcast, genocide and international efforts to protect people from genocide and mass atrocities, is often cast as this post-Cold War phenomena, whereas we'll find out today that the Genocide Convention itself is 70 years old, and even 300 years earlier than that, we have the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, where states and other international actors were negotiating and subsequently implementing uh, principles of intervention to protect vulnerable people, particularly in that instance, religious minorities from persecution. So, yeah, what are you actually saying is that these issues has, have been around for such a long time, for hundreds of years, and that relates very much to what we what we want to discuss today, um, because today on the pod, we are going to take a bit of a look at the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. 70 years ago, following the mass atrocities during the Second World War, global leaders came together and they designed a contract that they hoped would help them achieve a common goal, ending genocide once and for all. To date, 149 states have either ratified or acceded to the UN Convention, and they promised that they'd do whatever possible to prevent further genocides. And yet the world has seen so many more mass killings in the past 70 years, in Rwanda, the Congo, and Indonesia, to name only a few, and some of which have never been recognized as genocides under the convention. Even as we speak right now, the Rohingya crisis is unfolding in Myanmar, and the international community is bearing witness to the killing of thousands of people and the displacement of millions of people across the border to Bangladesh. And these atrocities committed by Myanmar's military against the Rohingya people are adding fuel to this debate, which we're going to look at today, about how such mass atrocities can be prevented and those who committed them can be brought to justice. So looking back at the past 70 years, 
How effective has the UN Convention been in preventing and punishing genocide? And how can we prevent or even indeed predict genocides in the future? So to discuss these difficult and pressing questions, we've got a great lineup of guests with us today. Dr. Melanie O'Brien has come all the way from Perth. This week she's spoken at the National Museum here in Canberra about the 70th anniversary of the Genocide Convention. Mel is Senior Lecturer at the Law School at the University of Western Australia. She specialises in international criminal law, human rights law, peacekeeping and feminist legal theory. Mel is also the Vice President of the International Association for Genocide Studies. Welcome, Melanie. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be back east again. Professor Ben Goldsmith is a professor at the School of Politics and International Relations here at the ANU. His areas of research are international relations, comparative foreign policy, and atrocity forecasting. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Luke. And Professor Robert Cribb is a professor at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the ANU. His research looks at Indonesia and Southeast Asia more broadly, with a focus on mass violence and crime, national identity, environmental politics, and historical geography. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. And just a quick reminder to all of our listeners who want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or you can do it the old-fashioned way and shoot us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. I'd also recommend to everyone to stick around after the main interview because we'll be discussing some of your comments and questions. Let's dive right into the issue. Given the tremendous scope of mass atrocities all around the globe, there are many questions raised about how do we actually define genocide? Let's try and get everyone on the same page, Melanie. When we talk about genocide, what do we actually mean? The definition of genocide is found in Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, and this has become the definitive definition of genocide because it's also the definition that's been taken up by all the international criminal court and tribunal statutes since then without any amendments made to that definition. So it continues to be definitive as we consider what is genocide today. And so Article 2 looks at genocide as five enumerated acts that are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a group. And those groups are national, ethnical, racial or religious groups. And the five enumerated acts are killing, uh, causing serious bodily or mental harm, imposing conditions of life designed to physically destroy the group, uh, transferring children of one group to another, and imposing measures designed to prohibit births from that group. So that's the definition of genocide that we find today in not only the Genocide Convention, but in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court and the statutes of other, uh, other criminal courts such as the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda or for the former Yugoslavia. Now, that's the limited definition within the convention, and it certainly does have its limitations. Robert, why are governments and international bodies, or have they been so hesitant in the past to label mass atrocities as genocide, maybe also referring to what Melanie just said? Well, they've been hesitant, especially because if something is labelled genocide, then there is an obligation to take action. Uh, but there is also a problem that because the Genocide Convention was so strong, so uh, imposing in its insistence that genocide should be, uh, should be ended, it's emerged as a kind of crime of crimes. And that in turn has exposed some of the definitional problems that arose from the, the Genocide Convention. So in the social sciences, we look at that definition and think it doesn't quite work 
because it could be extended in a number of different directions. So for instance, many people, and I'm in this particular group, would like to include the mass murder of political victims in the category of genocide. And the Genocide Convention refers to religious groups. Religious groups and political groups are not necessarily so different. And so that feels like an anomaly. But then there are other people who argue that the Genocide Convention should, or at least the definition of genocide, should be extended to include the extermination of indigenous peoples, which often happened over a long period of time, not necessarily primarily as a, as a result of mass killing, but nonetheless terribly destructive to, to those societies. And then there's also a, a group that argues that mass killing and war ought to be regarded as genocide because large numbers of uh, civilians are killed simply as uh, bystander victims of uh, military action, particularly strategic bombing. Ben, uh, I'd like to throw this one at you. What role does understanding the hallmarks of what genocide is and how we define genocide actually play in prevention attempts? I think it, it's it's really important to be clear about what we mean by genocide. But the the problem is, as as has already been noted, is that there, there's great disagreement from a practical perspective in the in the social sciences. Um, in a sense, it may be useful to to move beyond or or not consider use of the term genocide as as sort of the primary indicator uh, of mass atrocities um, because it it can be quite distracting because as just mentioned it's it's portrayed as the crime of crimes that it compels states or or others to act so I think in in a sense the the labeling events genocide can can serve as as somewhat of a distraction. The, it's it's really a, a sticky problem and it becomes a, a political problem. But in, in the social sciences, uh, I think it's useful to to separate out the different kinds of mass atrocities. You know, separating children from their parents and moving them to another group is, is a completely different kind of action than killing large numbers of people uh, violently in a, in a short period of time. And so prevention of those two very different acts, I think, requires different definitions uh, in, in a practical sense. So it might be good to explore the Genocide Convention in a little bit more detail. So Mel, so the, the United Nations adopted the convention 70 years ago to send out a clear message of never again after the Holocaust and other atrocities of the Second World War. So what exactly did states such as Australia actually sign up for? What do they undertake to do under the convention? Well, it's great that Australia was actually one of the first countries to ratify the Genocide Convention. And a lot of our neighbours actually haven't in the Asia-Pacific. So I would like to see Australia take a leading role in encouraging our neighbours to ratify it as well. When a state ratifies the Genocide Convention, it obviously imposes obligations on those states. And first and foremost, we see, and it comes from the title of the convention, states are obligated to prevent and punish the crime of genocide. But within the convention itself, it does provide a little bit more detail as to those obligations. So states are obligated to actually prosecute genocidaire, those people who commit genocide. And in doing so, what they also include in the genocide convention is the obligation to adopt effective legislation. So for example, if Australia doesn't actually have a law that prohibits genocide, then we can't actually prosecute anyone for that. 
So this is obviously a really important step that states have to do is make sure in their own domestic criminal law that they have a, a provision within that that says it is illegal to commit genocide. Now, they also have an obligation related to extradition for genocide. So, for example, if another country asks Australia to extradite someone who's within Australian territory who is alleged to have committed genocide, then Australia must do that, provided that the legal parameters surrounding extradition are also met. Now, something really interesting, though, is that the Convention obligates states to prevent and punish genocide, but there's no obligation not to commit genocide in the Convention. And this wasn't actually addressed until quite recently in the International Court of Justice in the cases that Bosnia and Croatia brought against Serbia. And in that, the court actually looked at that, this issue. And what the court decided was that this obligation to prevent also includes an obligation not to commit genocide. Because essentially, the court said, well, it defeats the entire purpose of this convention. If we say that you have to prevent it and you have to punishment, punish it, but you're still allowed to commit it. So even though that's not in the convention, it has still been interpreted as being part of the convention by the International Court of Justice. Could I ask a follow-up question to that? So it seems to me you're, when you're talking about, say, Australia's obligations, it's primarily Australia's obligations with respect to genocide that occurs within Australia. Does Australia have any obligations under the convention to respond to genocides occurring elsewhere? They absolutely do. And again, I'm going to refer to the International Court of Justice cases. So what, what they found in these cases was that genocide was committed in Srebrenica in Bosnia, but they found that the government in Belgrade at the time was not responsible for it. However, they did find that the government was responsible for not preventing that genocide because they said it was foreseeable that there could be genocide committed in Srebrenica and so therefore they should have done something to prevent it. And this was the crystallisation of this duty to take action to prevent a genocide outside your own territory. Now, that's not an absolute obligation. So obviously, you need to have the means to do it and, and you need to actually be able to make a difference. So if a state is not going to make any difference, then there really isn't an obligation. And obviously, there's no need to be able to predict with certainty that the state's actions will prevent genocide because nobody can really do that. We can't say with certainty if you do X genocide will be stopped. Could I ask one more follow-up question? Just building off what both Robert and Ben were saying about the significance of the label genocide, this obligation to prevent genocide, is there a comparable obligation to prevent, say, crimes against humanity as a matter of law? Or even uh, is there a political significance, perhaps, this label of genocide that uh, doesn't obtain when it comes to matters of crimes against humanity? It's a great question. And the answer is no. <laughs> Because we have a genocide convention, and while it has its failures, this is a success of it, that it does obligate states to act when genocide is taking place. But we do not have a Crimes Against Humanity convention. There are people who are working towards uh, drafting one and eventually putting it forward in the United Nations. But at the moment, we do not have one. And so therefore, there is no obligation when it comes to preventing crimes against humanity. There has also been no general agreement in law where whether or not the prohibition on crimes against humanity is what we call customary law, meaning that it would apply to all countries in the world regardless of whether they are party to a convention or not. So this is quite problematic. The other area of 
international crimes is obviously war crimes, and those are regulated under the Geneva Conventions and the additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions. So there are some obligations under that to take action with regards to war crimes uh, within the international humanitarian law system. Ben, I wonder if I could ask you, has has the convention made a tangible difference in state behaviour? And... Um how would we know and what might that what, what might evidence for that look like well that's a great question and unfortunately i don't have a, a great answer for it. i i would suspect that it that it has made a difference in curbing state behavior uh, to some extent but um, of course these events continue to happen uh, whether they meet a particular threshold for genocide or just or just below it um, large numbers of people continue to be killed by by their governments or by non-state actors. A, a, a difficulty that, that we we face in in my project, which tries to tries to build quantitative models to to understand and predict genocide, it, it's very hard to identify cases where genocide would have happened, but it was present, prevented. Thing you know, the the dog that didn't bark is is a is a huge problem with these sorts of um, overall, very rare events. They continue to happen, but they're you know they're uh, exceedingly rare. If you can, if you think that in every country and every year uh, something might happen, it it happens less than once a year on average over the course of the since the end of the, the of World War II. Now that we've gained a bit of an insight into the UN Convention, you've mentioned some really really interesting points. Um, I'd like to discuss a few na- notable case studies with you and would like to start with Indonesia. In 1965, the Indonesian military under Major General Suharto drove this propaganda campaign against the Indonesian Communist Party and they linked them with the killing of six military generals by a militant group called the 30th September Movement. The military successfully constructed this whole, you could say, conspiracy which caused a wave of mass violence against alleged leftists, members of the Indonesia Communist Party and also ethnic Chinese, killing millions. Robert, do you think it was fair that these massacres in Indonesia were never recognised as a genocide under the UN Convention? Well, I think it's a problem of the definition in the UN Convention. I don't think that the problem singles out Indonesia. There are, there are several cases of mass political killings in Asia in the 20th century, in Indonesia, in Cambodia, in China, in the Soviet Union, in the Asian part of the Soviet Union. So it's a, it's a problem of definition and it's the problem that arises because political groups were not recognized as being, uh, as being one of the categories that, against which genocide could be committed. Now, the killings in Indonesia were conducted partly by the military, partly by civilian militias that were encouraged and trained and authorised by the military. There were also some cases of independent militias going out and conducting their own killings. Uh, It's actually not the case that Chinese were significantly targeted. In fact, the proportion of the Chinese population that died in those killings was smaller than the proportion of non-Chinese Indonesians who died. So there's a bit of a myth that Chinese were targeted. This was really a political genocide and the people who were targeted were those who were connected with the Indonesian Communist Party. It was actually done really rather efficiently, except we have to say that the, the army's definition of who was a communist was very, very broad. So you could be rather soft left and still caught up in the uh, in the net 
but we don't have very much reliable evidence of uh, people being targeted for reasons other than the presumption that they were were communist. How did the international community respond to these atrocities? And is there any evidence that they looked at these atrocities through the lens of the Genocide Convention? No one looked at the those killings through the lens of the Genocide Convention, partly because of the, the definition, but also because this was the height of the Cold War. And the West, the West has sometimes been accused of conniving with the Indonesian military and carrying out the, the killings. My own view is that that goes a bit uh, a bit far, but they were indifferent. We look at uh, official reports, we look at public comments by uh, leaders in the West, and they're supremely indifferent to the fact that hundreds of thousands of people are being killed. It's dismissed as uh, something that happens in Asia, life is cheap there, who, who cares? Perhaps a question to all of you. One notable exclusion from the UN Convention are political groups. How could they be included, perhaps starting with you, Robert? The UN definition includes the uh, the mass killing of national groups. And in the case of many political mass political killings, the, the groups that are targeted, in fact, represent a national idea. So in the case of Indonesia, Indonesia's national identity was torn between an Islamic identity, a communist identity, and a, a kind of liberal developmentalist identity. So when communists were killed, they weren't just being killed as uh, political opponents, but they were being killed as the representatives of an idea of Indonesia. And on those grounds, it might actually be reasonable to say that those killings were included were covered by the Genocide Convention. But that's an argument that we are having at the moment. Uh, some people will agree, some people don't. Yeah, so this, um, the distinction between ethnic or identity groups and political groups, I think is, is, a, is a really important one and one that comes out of, out of the, the convention and, and the, the legal definition of genocide. And it's one that um, in the, the social scientific study of these kinds of atrocities has has caused a lot of consternation. And I think the the general consensus, in at least in, in my field in political science, um, building on the work, work of a woman named Barbara Harf, is that the what's called politicide is uh, a type of crime that is very similar, if not often inseparable from the type of crime that, that we call genocide. If you think of the Cambodian genocide, it was the killing of political opponents. And if you think of mass killings in general, you know, it's it's hard to argue that they're not political in some way, even if the group that's targeted is is ethnic. So it's often a you know a minority group and a and a majority group fighting for political control, uh, um, as in Rwanda, for example. So for from the my perspective of doing empirical studies and trying to forecast these events, the distinction, it's sort of a distinction without a difference and one that one that is not very meaningful empirically, obviously uh, legally and in terms of how you might characterize the groups, it, it can be important. Um, so so I think that, that uh, you know, there, there's there's this distinction that that um, has come from international law and the original conception of the of the idea that hasn't been so helpful in prevention, for example. 
Absolutely. And and Benny's right. You know, when we're talking about the law, there does have to be a distinction. But I think that lawyers could get a little bit more creative in the way they perceive it. And and I refer back to what Robert was just talking about, about this categorization of what happened in Indonesia. And it is the same in Cambodia, where there was a perception that they were targeting political opponents. But my belief is that it wasn't truly political because they weren't just targeting people who were against communism. They even ended up killing people who were in their closest circle, who were part of the top echelon of the Khmer Rouge. So it was really just about power. It wasn't truly about getting rid of people who were against communism. So my belief is that ultimately it's not actually political. It is an intent to destroy, at least in part, that national group. And in Cambodia, the Khmer people. When the Genocide Convention was signed, most people thought of ethnic groups as something eternal. They imagined that uh, ethnic groups had their roots uh, going back for hundreds or thousands of years and that they were largely um, unchangeable. So if you exterminated an ethnic group, it was like a species going extinct, being made extinct. It was destruction of something that was really precious to humankind. What we understand now is that ethnic identity is much more malleable. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And fluid so that ethnic identities can develop quite quickly, they can disappear, and they can often have quite a strong political connotation. Uh, and one of the strongest examples of that is in the United States, where the term un-American is very much a political term. So there's an ethnic national term, which is used in a purely political way. So the distinction between an ethnic group and a political group is nowhere near as sharp in terms of our analysis now as it used to be in 1948. I'd like now to discuss a more recent example of genocide. So in 2016, the Burmese military and state began to crack down on the Rohingya Muslims in Rakhine State, raping and killing thousands, forcing more than half a million to flee to neighbouring Bangladesh. And a UN report has since labelled the crimes against the Rohingya as genocide and stated that military leaders should face charges. So Ben, kind of drawing on your genocide forecasting expertise, should the world have seen this coming and could it have been prevented? The answer to both those questions is yes, certainly could have seen it coming in our, not to spruik our forecasting project too much, but in our forecasting project, we had um, Myanmar on the, on the list for the, the period up to 2015 as a place, one of the countries where, where genocide was most likely to occur. And it was near near the top, in the top 20 of our list uh, uh, for, the, for the current period when it, when it actually did happen. So this this is a country at risk with a lot of well-known risk factors and the um, the attitudes towards the, the Rohingya mi minority are, are longstanding in, in Myanmar and the, the activism uh, of the Buddhist monks against the group was also, you know, well-known and well-reported. Well and prevention, I mean, prevention is, is difficult, but uh, certainly there are a lot of levers of pressure uh, that can be brought on on countries and, you know, the, the standard levers of economic sanctions, threats of military action and intervention, you know, all the things that might go along with the responsibility to protect 
it would be nice if these things could be prevented without threats of force. Uh, but I think given the nature of genocide errors uh, and the nature of the crimes, uh, force is sometimes the only language, the threat of force, the only language that's actually understood. Mel, I see you nodding along there. Tell us a little bit about whether you think there's any chance of Myanmar's military leaders uh, being prosecuted for the crime of genocide here. Yeah, great question. I, I just wanted to follow on from Ben, who I absolutely agree with 100%. And in the genocide scholar community, we talk about genocide as a process. It's not an event, it's a process. And there are many steps that take place before killing actually occurs that are part of it. And with regards to the Rohingya in Myanmar, this has been going on for decades. So it was definitely foreseeable. The first violence against the Rohingya, which caused 200,000 of them to flee Myanmar, was back in 1978. There was another uh, another round in 1991, where a quarter of a million of them fled. So this is nothing new. This this, we can't say that this took us by surprise. For all these decades, the Rohingya have been restricted in their movement. They've been denied citizenship. They've been denied access to education. They've been denied access to healthcare. They've had their crops burned, their villages burned. Uh, this has been going on for a very long time and it was very obvious what was coming. In terms of accountability, this is a really tough issue and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. Um, in thinking about, we're talking about the 70th anniversary of the Genocide Convention, Myanmar did, is a state party. They became a state party in the 1950s. And so they can be held accountable under the Genocide Convention. However, it's not that easy. Because the Genocide Convention is a treaty, that means that people, uh, that countries can take action against other countries through the International Court of Justice. And that is specifically provided for in the Genocide Convention. However, even though going to the International Court of Justice is a legal proceeding, it's not that straightforward because we're talking about states. We're talking about state-level decisions. There are political considerations that states have to make before they take another state to court before the ICJ. And in this case, we're looking at a small country that has a very big and powerful neighbour, China, that has very significant interests in Myanmar through its Belt and Road Initiative, through pipelines going through Myanmar, through a desire for access uh, to water. Any country that may be thinking about taking Myanmar as a state to court at the ICJ will be thinking about the political ramifications, maybe their trade ramifications, but generally ramifications on their relationship with China. So it's not an easy decision for any state to make in this regard. And particularly like thinking about Australia, we're a party, but we're also very close to China and we have big ties with China. So that would be consideration. In thinking about individual criminal responsibility, this is obviously a really difficult challenge. Um, first and foremost, we would want them to be tried in Myanmar, under Myanmar law, but of course the government are the ones who are perpetrating these atrocities. So that's not going to happen. The next point you look at is, well, what can we do with the International Criminal Court? However, unsurprisingly, Myanmar is not a state party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. So therefore, the International Criminal Court does not have jurisdiction over any crimes committed within the territory of Myanmar. So what the ICC has done is actually really creative and really amazing. And the Office of the Prosecutor has said, we are going to have a look at a crime that starts in Myanmar but finishes in Bangladesh because Bangladesh is a state party 
to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And so this is where we're at with the ICC, is looking at one crime. It's not genocide. It's a crime against humanity. However, it's still a first step. And it, and it's really quite amazing. And the court has agreed that the prosecutor can go forward and investigate this crime that was completed by crossing the border into Bangladesh. And I actually think that they can take that further. I think that they can argue because genocide is a process, not an event, that it's not only taking place in Rakhine State where people are being killed, but part of the process is that the Burmese perpetrators know that the Rohingya are going to flee into Bangladesh to the camps in Cox's Bazaar where there are now approximately 1.2 million people. They know that conditions in those camps are horrific. There isn't enough health care for everyone. There isn't enough food for everyone. So people are going to be dying in those camps. People are not going to be able to reproduce because they are simply too ill to do so. So this is part of the process. Those authorities know that the process continues once they cross the border. So I think there's room for the ICC prosecutor to get even more creative here. A couple of quick points to follow on from from Mel's comments. Uh, so I, I I completely agree that there, there's a huge political element here in in prosecution. One of the things that that I think is really important is the ability to collect evidence, which can play a, a very big role in the political process. It's one thing to argue that something didn't happen uh, to pick another ally of China, North Korea, when the evidence is very hard to, to put together that the crimes have been committed. But in the case of Myanmar, I mean, the there was a, an abundance of evidence because uh, you know experts have been studying this as as, as Mel has noted, it, it was well known, um, but also. Because it was it was uh, uh, um, instigated or, or uh, mobilized uh, partly in social media on Facebook, so so there were posts that were from the military that were very clear about about what was going on. Uh, so one of our arguments in uh, uh, creating a risk list that actually makes predictions into the future is that those countries can be monitored. And evidence can be collected with, uh, you know, with with a special vigilance for for the countries most most at risk, which can then sway the political process for for punishment, for prevention, for for um, prosecution afterwards. But also, I want to want to jump in on Mel's point about about China. I think that we're you know with China's rising power, countries that. Uh, and leaders that would choose genocide or crimes against humanity see that they have a potential new protector. I mean, the, these are policies that are part of China's history. There's this kind of behavior towards their population, things that China does not want to have uh, raised about its own behavior. I mean, it's, it's treatment of the, the weaker minority currently, uh, you know, is bumping up against these crimes against humanity uh, behavior. And I think they will be increasingly willing willing to protect and provide, you know, trading partners and alliance to to countries that that choose this kind of behavior. So I, I think the rise of China is sort of bad news for the prevention of genocide. Ben, can I actually draw a bit on your your research that you have done on predicting genocides? When do you think genocide is most likely to happen next? Well, our our list tells us the country on the on the on the top of the risk list is is South Sudan. So. 
so we have we have a list of fifteen countries um, that are that are most at risk: Sudan, South Sudan, uh, and and a number of others are are high on the list. Um, one thing I, I would notice: I mean, prediction is a difficult is a difficult game, and and we we assess our accuracy, and I, I know that our accuracy can be improved. So I don't want to talk too much about about particular countries because it, it's you know there's there's a probability that will happen. But what I what I will say from the, from the data we've collected, we've we've actually collected a, a new data set on genocide going from 1946 to 2017 and other related crimes that we call targeted mass killing. And one pattern that we've noticed over time, which I think is is a bit hopeful actually, is that the the number of events that we would call a targeted mass killing event that begin uh, um, has not greatly declined over the period from the end of World War II. But the percentage of those that escalate to the highest levels of, of mass killing has dropped significantly. So, so going back to Luke's earlier question about has the Genocide Convention or other efforts, responsibility to protect, have, have those been effective? I, I think there's some empirical evidence that something is preventing these cases from escalating to the highest levels of killing that we've seen seen in the past. So there's, there's that's some moderate good news. Maybe just a final question for all of you, perhaps uh, beginning with Robert, if you could give one recommendation to the international community on how to prevent future genocides, what would it be? I think that many genocides are actually unexpected, that they, at least that they're triggered by unexpected events and that they, they result from sudden outbursts of indignation and anger. So there's actually a lot of intervention that can be done to defuse crises right at the moment that they, that they happen. We live in a world where there's all sorts of social conflict. We can find social conflict everywhere. So we can find the, the raw materials for genocide in many, many countries. But if we can work out the immediate triggers and then work out ways of not pulling those triggers, then we have some chance of diminishing the scale of genocide. How about you, Ben? I guess my my main recommendation for how to prevent gen uh, future genocides is to more closely monitor the, the countries that we think are, are at greatest risk today. And that's something that can be done by non-governmental groups. It can be done with satellites. It can be done through open source news reporting. But I think it's crucial that, that governments that are really concerned about prevention of genocide and declare they are, even the US government still formally says that, that the prevention Prevention of genocide is a national security uh, interest uh, of the United States. Uh, you know, the, the governments, including Australia, with their intelligence tools, um, uh, can do a lot of monitoring and, and collection of evidence and and prevention through diplomacy as well, uh, informing potential genocide heirs of of the potential consequences if they go ahead with the policies there. They're contemplating and signaling that it's 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 a real interest of of countries that are that are concerned. So I, I think there's a lot more that can be done based on what what we know and what what uh, is is obvious, but doesn't often rise to the top of the diplomatic or, or political uh, priorities. And Mel, I'm going to go a bit grassroots, and my answer is education, and I don't just mean at tertiary level. I mean for young people at at primary and high school level, and and not just teaching about key genocides like the Holocaust in high school, but also teaching more fundamental concepts about inclusion and tolerance and teaching young people about hate speech and what it does. Because 
these kinds of things start at a grassroots level where you have uh, leadership who encourages the majority to hate a minority group. And that's what fosters genocide. And so if we start at educational level, then maybe we get these young people coming through and saying, hang on, that's really not okay what you're saying about that minority group. And that we also get young people who aren't bothered by someone who is a little bit different in some way, you know, who maybe has a different religion or a different skin colour, that they're just humans like we all are. And so I think starting with that is a really good way to help us prevent genocide. Thanks. Very sobering topic, but very hope, hopeful um, thoughts there. Um, you've each given us so much to think about. Robert, thanks particularly for your wonderful insights on the Indonesian atrocities in the 60s. Mel, thanks for your very useful thoughts on Myanmar and the Rohingya today. And Ben, it's great to hear about your research on genocide forecasting and prediction. Thank you all for speaking to us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And to our listeners, don't go anywhere because Luke and I will be back after this and we'll discuss some comments and questions. Thank you so much again, Melanie O'Brien, Robert Cripp and Ben Goldsmith. I have to say I'm quite mind blown by this absolutely deep and thoughtful conversation that we just had and we had some really passionate comments here and I have to say I'm a really big fan of what Melanie has said in the end that this grassroots approach to actually start where we educate our children about hate speech particularly in a time of social media where everyone can just say whatever they think and they often don't think what that actually does to the person they are directing it at. So I think she made a very good point that how that also plays into the prevention of genocide. Luke, what's your view? What was your yeah. main takeaway? Oh, no, it was, it, was, it was wonderful thoughts from all of them, I thought. I completely agree with you. I, I thought Mel Melanie's conclusion was quite inspiring and kind of alerts us to some of the possibilities for overcoming this, this hideous problem, this scourge of genocide. Uh, but also, as, as they talked through the the legal aspects and also the political aspects right now with respect to Myanmar, you really get a, a horrific sense of the um, the limits of, of what is possible in this particular political climate that we have. You've heard what Luke and I think about this very hard-hitting discussion tonight, but we would love to hear your thoughts, our listeners' thoughts on this topic, please give us your feedback and your comments because each week at the end of the podcast, we answer some of these questions and respond to what you guys have sent to us. I'd like to dive straight into our first comment that is on the article, Saudi Arabia's growing sporting influence by Simon Chatwick and Paul Widdop. Simon and Paul take a look at Saudi Arabia's increasing investment in global sports and whether it's just a case of playing catch-up with Qatari neighbours or an attempt to sportwash a sullied reputation. We've got a comment here from Andrea on Twitter. He writes, Excellent article. Having discussed the matter with sports experts in the region last week, I can say this is pretty much in with what's going on in Saudi. Thank you, Andrea, for that comment. What do you think, Luke? Yeah, it'll be, I think it'll be very interesting to think through and see what happens with this question of Saudi Arabia's reputation. The um, be interesting to see if Saudi reputation survives the murder of the US-based journalist Khashoggi um, and whether it survives the horrific crimes against humanity that the Saudi-led coalition are committing in their bombing campaign in Yemen. And I, I also think it's, it's quite uh, noteworthy to think about how much attention this murder of Khashoggi is getting 
and how much of a cost Saudi Arabia is paying in terms of its reputation in contrast to the uh, relative paucity of attention being given to Yemen and the crimes being committed by the Saudis and their at least partial responsibility for the crisis there that the UN calls the world's worst humanitarian crisis. 14 million people, UNHCR, say, are in imminent risk of starvation. Most of those are children. So it'll be um, interesting and important to see how this plays out. Yes, and I think there's, next to what you just said, and I'm really inclined to agree with you that there is some kind of attempt to pressure over certain political issues, that there's also this sports aspect to it. With the World Cup in Qatar and Qatar really ramping up its sports game, I guess for Saudi Arabia, it's also important to follow suit and also demonstrate that they can be a strong sports nation. I'd like to move on to the next comment, which is on quite a controversial article. It's got a very strong response on social media. And we've got, actually got multiple comments on this one. It's the Russia and Ukraine's Australian proxy war piece by Elizabeth Buchanan. In this piece, she writes that Russia is a rising power in the Asia-Pacific region, but a lack of country-specific expertise in Australia's universities is making it hard to hear counter-narratives. We've got so many brilliant comments on this, and we're just giving you a snapshot of what we have. This one is also a snapshot of a much longer comment on Policy Forum by John Richardson. So I'd recommend to everyone to actually jump in and have a look at what he's writing because he's making arguments both in favor and against what Elizabeth is arguing. And he says, otherwise, I would agree with the nub of your argument that Australia isn't as well equipped with Russia expertise as it was in the Cold War. And it would be nice if it could be strengthened again as Russia influence becomes more salient globally. But also worth being aware that our expertise was never that great at a time when Russia's importance was much higher than today. We got another comment by Olga Krasniak on Twitter and she writes, good insight, expanding opportunities for Russia specialists in Australian universities, maybe. And one more comment that said that it was time for ANU to have new Russia center. Thank you so much for your comments, John and Olga. Luke, I'd like to know from you, do we really not have enough Russia expertise in Australia? Well, yeah, so Russia is certainly uh, flexing its muscles at the moment. Just this week, we've seen Russia's captured three Ukrainian Navy vessels and their crew. Certainly, Russia's increasing aggressiveness uh, demands attention. ANU has a small number of, of great Russian analysts. I personally don't think um, Russia's renewed assertiveness demands a new Russia-focused center at ANU. We don't have uh, a US center or an India center, and they would seem to me to be more central to Australia's concerns. But yes, certainly Russian expertise across a range of disciplines and a range of themes is always a good thing. Now I'd like to take a look at the last comment for today and hear your thoughts on that, of course, Luke. Australia can't forget Micronesia is a piece by Anthony Burgeon. And he writes that Australia's decision to open new diplomatic posts in Palo and the Marshall Islands should be the first of many steps in an increased diplomatic footprint in Micronesia. He also argues that it will always make good strategic sense for Australia to focus our South Pacific efforts on Melanesia. But Micronesia's strategic significance is rising and Australia should be working with its North Pacific neighbours. 
We've got a brilliant comment here from Andrew on Twitter, and he writes, the people of Palo are much happier, I can assure you, now that they don't have seven charter flights a week landing. Thank you for that comment, Andrew. Luke, at the Coral Bell School here at the ANU, there's a lot of expertise focused on the Pacific, and I'm quite sure your colleagues will be interested in this. What do you think? Is Australia paying enough attention to the Pacific Islands? Well, yeah, certainly Australia is paying some attention. I, I suppose reflecting on uh, Burgeon's piece, and this is no reflection on the merits of his argument, I worry about our tenden- tendency to couch Australia's relations with its neighbours in the Pacific in terms of our strategic interests, in terms of what we can get from it in terms of security or economics. We always we have this habit, perhaps even an obsession of thinking about our relations and our engagement with our neighbours in terms of our national interests. Um, in many cases, these are vulnerable neighbours who really need and value our assistance and aid. Um, and, and to be honest, I find it a little bit revolting sometimes how we just have this felt need to always think of how we should engage with them in terms of w- what we can get out of it. To bring a bit of a devil's advocate question in here, is it realistic to argue that goodwill should always trump strategic interests? Yeah, I think it's realistic. I, I don't think it's realistic to think that Australia is going to change how it approaches its foreign policy in its region anytime soon. Uh, but I don't think there's anything stopping us. It's it's humans, it's Australian humans who who create these foreign policies and we have choices. We have choices whether to approach these issues selfishly, which is how we tend to do it, or to exercise a bit more compassion, a bit more generosity, a bit more selflessness in how we engage with, as I say, often vulnerable neighbours. Thank you, Andrea, John, Olga and Andrew for your comments. This has been has given us a great base to have a discussion on. So, Luke, this has been your very first podcast today. How did it feel? Oh, it was great fun. What we, we had such a great bunch of uh, experts here, didn't we? I absolutely enjoyed myself. A big thank you to everyone who commented and a reminder to keep sending them in. That also includes suggestions for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum, Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or just drop us a line at podcast at policyforum.net. And if you enjoyed today's episode, as we surely did, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds and just find that fifth star. It'll be a big help to us getting the word out about this podcast. And we'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from us, cheerio. Thanks very much for having me, Julia. 